Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Come see the Boutique on Central in downtown Laurel for the best deals in women's fine clothing. Let us complete your one-of-a-kind look at the Boutique on Central at 531 Central Avenue in downtown Laurel. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this Hump day the last one i might add of the year 2023 next week we'll be humping day in 2024 Starting a whole new cycle of them. Yep. It's going to be a busy dang week next week. you got, of course, New Year's Day. We'll rest and relax a bit on Monday. And then uh, all hell starts breaking loose, honestly. The uh, state capitol will be filled. It will be replete with all those elected legislators. They'll be down there getting it going. And then I think uh, some of the statewide elected officials will have some celebrations in the evening of the governor's inauguration. I believe that's on the 9th, if I'm not mistaken, January 9th. That is an all-day affair, as you know. The governor gets sworn in, and then there's a parade, other events, big ball, etc. A lot of stuff. Of course, you got the Gulf Coast Legislative Contingent always hosts their annual uh, eat-in there at the Trademark. I think that's on Wednesday, the second day of the session. That's when a lot of the food vendors from the Gulf Coast area come on up and cook some good food now. It's a good deal at the Mississippi Trademark. MEC Capital Day is on Thursday. Golly, can we pack anything else into that week, next week? A lot of stuff. What else is going on that you're aware of next week? Oh, I'm sure something else will come up. <laughs> it always does the first couple weeks of the year. No doubt about it. But it's uh, it's always a time for optimism, is it not? Turning over a new leaf, as they say, clearing, cleaning the slate, clearing the boards, Whatever other metaphors you want to use to signal the ringing in of the new year. I, for one, am looking forward to it. Speaking of which, Orlando, Florida now has been deemed the best city in America in which to celebrate New Year's Eve. It has displaced New York in that distinction. 
But well, I mean, in the day and age of social media, the allure of standing in a 150 deep crowd wearing diapers so you don't lose your spot kind of tarnishes the glitz and glamour of New York's New Year's Eve. I would agree. New York City is now number three on Wallet Hub's New Year's Eve list, though it does have, as you know, a, an internationally televised broadcast. Oh, yeah. All the festivities on New Year's Eve, Times Square specifically. I did see that even though we reported yesterday these pro-Palestinian anti-Israel protesters who took to the streets Christmas Eve where they were trying to interfere with carolers downtown New York there, chanting, Christmas is canceled! And just getting in everybody's faces and disrupting the the joy and the peace. I did see that Times Square, however, you know, there's gigantic jumbotrons all over the place, actually broke out like authentic Christmas images. I mean, like religious nativity scene sort of images. I was pleasantly shocked, I might add. Good for them. That's awesome. Uh, but these Palestinian protesters, uh, they're, they're just taking a page out of the Democrat Marxist playbook, or they not, just can't have fun. Just can't have fun. No peace, no joy, no fun. Everything's negative, dour, dire, disrupt interfere, intervene. It's incredible. It's because they have nothing better or constructive to actually do with their lives. Evidently, because it's hard to imagine that they truly are contributing anything to society. No. Positive. I don't no, think that's you look the case. at just about anybody that takes their dear sweet time to go protest just about anything. Yeah. And they are a drain on society. I totally agree. Yeah. And you know what they're usually doing? Complaining about the people that are working? Because they're getting ahead of them economically. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, holiday spending grew in the latest report or a, a recent report. So even though re- the retail sector was concerned about all that helicopter money dropped on the United States during the pandemic era drying up, Still, though, the spending was pretty strong. Consumer spending grew rather solidly. And so this is a, this is a positive indicator of the future of the economy next year. I think that's good. Uh, 3.1% spending increase versus last year. And that's according to data released on Tuesday by... MasterCard Spending Pulse is the name of the organization that measures in-store and online purchases from the period November 1st to December 24th across, by the way, all forms of payment. I suspect that retailers voluntarily submit that information to the organization because they get the reports back in return. 
essentially is compensation for their trouble of providing the data, furnishing the data, and then they act on that. I mean, it's valuable information to them. So rather robust spending, even though we experienced inflation, it has moderated somewhat. There are actually a few things that have declined in price, which is deflation. And there's a distinction between a true decline in the price of something or a, or a basket of goods or a category of goods. Well, that's deflation. That's, that's good in terms of, of uh, the cost of whatever those goods or services are. However, the decline in the rate of increase is a different matter, and that often gets conflated, especially by our president and his spokespeople. They, um, they usually get that wrong when they talk about it. But it's, it's good almost news. like they don't have a clue what they're talking about. It's not even almost like I'm here to tell you they don't. Let me just go ahead and make that clear. People may be upset because I have expressed that opinion, but that is what it is, an opinion, and it's rooted in the constant analysis of what the president and his spokespeople say, especially as it pertains to economic issues. They regularly get stuff wrong. And I know you may be shocked at this, but that's in the hopes that people will accept whatever it is they say at face value, and they'll say, yeah, that Joe's pretty good. <laughs> he, you may have seen, admonished uh, the press when he was stopped en route to Marine One there. You know, that walk from the White House to Marine One often is filled with reporters that like to stop and stop the president en route in that short walk and hit him up with some questions. I will say Donald Trump, always very accommodating, often to the point where his handlers will say, hey, Mr. Mr. President, we got to go. we got to go. He loved to engage with the press, and he did not shy away from talking about anything. I thought that was great, honestly. I, I'll credit him for that. This president, not so much. He tends to walk away and avoid the press. In this case, the, um, the question, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, was, hey, Mr. President, what do you think about your polling numbers vis-a-vis the economy they're not too strong, something to that effect, which they're not. And he said, well, you guys need to report it right. Everything's doing great. You need to report it right. <laughs> it's like, so the way the media reports on the economy, that actually influences how a person feels or what their real-life lived experiences are? With respect to the economy, if you're running around expecting the press, you got to go out there and just tell everybody things are great. No, you're losing when that's the case. People can figure that out. They're pretty smart. They don't need you to tell them that. But that is what they honestly do believe, sadly. I don't know. If you're a Democrat voter, you need to be told how to do just about everything. <laughs> we got Representative Robert Johnson at 1105. The minority leader represents District 94. Aaron Rice at 1205, the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute. We're in the Element Well studio just getting started, and we're coming right back. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. 
Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studio, we appreciate you joining us today. Don't forget, you want to sign out for the Super Top Mississippi News this week in Mississippi Newsletter. Our Super Top Mississippi News team is covering your Mississippi stories. Stay up to date. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter at supertalk.fm/newsletter. You definitely want to do that in advance of the legislative session getting underway because they're going to be tracking all the news. And much of that news, folks, uh, comes from the interviews that we do here on the programs, on the Callow Show and on this show. And, of course, we have um, firsthand insight in speaking with the members of the legislature and other statewide elected officials And that drives lots of the news stories that our team produces. So you want to stay up to date on that, sign up for the newsletter. So Thomas said, adjusted for inflation, if not, that's a decrease. No, this is a a nominal calculation, um, not an adjusted calculation, Thomas. And there are some goods that during the measurement period actually fell, fell. By 0.1%. That's between October and December. So now if you looked at a comparison of those prices to, say, three years ago, which is, I think, the more uh, more meaningful measurement as far as the president's performance. I mean, that, And that's why his poll numbers are so ridiculously low. And in particular, some like 14% of Americans say, yeah, I'm better off. That ain't good. And you know who those 14% are? The very people that they don't want to get better off. That's who's better off. It's the wealthy. Those who have significant investments. Because this past year was a pretty good year. And what they don't get is, it's their policies that drove the market. It's all that money you've given away. And all these credits and grants and all that other stuff. How many billions of dollars did they put in that crap for building chargers for EVs? Oh, yeah. How many have actually been built? It's a total flop. Complete failure. Like we needed to wait to see that that was going to happen. They can't give away the EVs despite the credits. And I was talking to some... Well, it doesn't help if you try to update your... uh software in your EV, especially a Ford, it'll just brick up on you. You showed me that yesterday. Tell the good people about what you found there. Yeah, it's a whole brand new blue screen of death coming to you. (laughs) All you got to do is buy a Ford Lightning and then have the update mess up because then you can't drive your car. (laughs) It literally said the message right on the screen inside the vehicle said you can't drive this thing or something to that effect until you get the software corrected. Yeah, you got to tow it in to get the software updated. 
And at the very bottom of the screen, it says, well, the screen, the whole screen says, update, not successful. <laughs> Unfortunately, a recent software update was not successful. Your vehicle cannot be driven. That's so good. And then it's got the customer service number and their little apology. And then at the bottom, for the tow truck operator. <laughs> When ready to load the vehicle onto the flatbed, press and hold the brake pedal and accelerator pedal all the way down. Shift to neutral while holding both pedals all the way down. Press L or S in the center of the gear dial, if if applicable. Otherwise, skip this step. Check that the instrument cluster shows the vehicle in neutral. Then release the brake pedal and accelerator pedal, and it's ready for you to tow. A series of instructions for your tow truck driver. <laughs> Uh, can you imagine the look on their face? Hey, wait, before you hook me up and start towing this thing, you need to come read what's on the screen inside. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that'll go well. This is so misguided. It's not even funny, is it? And, you know, I, I was talking to some CPA friends of mine over the weekend about something we've discussed numerous times on the program, these green energy credits. And remember that you got the EV credit. And that is provided at the point of purchase. The dealer files for reimbursement from the government on that, and they pass that through at the point of purchase. But then there's the the other electrical stuff that qualifies for these green credits that are more consumer household related, such as solar panels, an upgrade to your electrical panel. The, the theory is... You're going to replace all your gas-powered appliances and the like with electric-powered equivalents, and I use that term very loosely. Therefore, you need to upgrade your electric power panel to accommodate the load. So you get a credit on that, and then you get a credit on these electric appliances. To like to your stove, for example, washing and washer and dryer and other stuff, refrigerators, more efficient, especially if they're replacing those which are powered with natural gas. And that's supposed to be administered as well at the point of sale by the retailer. I'm still looking for somebody to come forward and tell me they went and bought some new appliances appliances explicitly to receive and take advantage of those credits and that they received them, like from their neighborhood retailer. I, I'm i still looking for somebody to say they did that. Yeah, man, as soon as they announced that program, I went right down there and, and said, I'm ripping out this gas stove and I'm putting me an electric one in because my president asked me to. Now, I get it if your stove needs to be replaced because it's, it's malfunctioning, it's old, it's aging. You just need to upgrade. Maybe you've decided to get an electric one over a gas for any number of reasons. But I'm still looking for the person to show up and say, yeah, man, sure glad Joe Biden passed. <laughs> I haven't heard of anybody. Nobody. And you know something else? I think it's income-based. So you got a problem when you file your tax return. If your income it didn't fit in, to um, the the range it did at the point of purchase. Now you owe the government money. <laughs> How about that? Same could happen with the EBs. Oh my gosh! What it's a just joke. another unintended consequence of stupid legislation. Totally. 
uh, completely. But that's what happens when you virtue, virtue signal from the halls of Congress. Well, and that's what that's all about. It, it, you just can't believe that that has any bearing whatsoever on climate change. I'm just not. I'm not buying it. I'm just not. I think it's crazy. But yet, it is something that they're clearly hanging their hat on. And you may have seen that that uh, the Biden administration is going after four more appliances. Is there, is there no limit? I mean, before you know it, it'll be dirt floors and straw roofs, won't it? You won't have any, any sort of uh, uh, climate. <laughs> climate appliances in your homes. But they got dishwashers now in the crosshairs and washing machines, and it's not only power, but it's water usage. Some folks say that they use so little water now that homeowners are having to improvise to get their clothes clean. Some people are saying they're putting, like, using buckets to add more water to the washing machine. We're going backwards. We might as well just return to the Stone Age. Just abandon all human innovation <laughs> in that respect. So it's washing machines. It's not machines. like they don't have examples of where this is headed. Just look at anybody from Europe or Eastern Asia that also has access to a washing machine. Because sometimes the economies in those places don't allow for you to own your own washing machine. But if you do, guess what you can wash in your washing machine? One pair of blue jeans <laughs> per load. Well, that's right. That's where we're headed. That's, that's the future coming to, to you, coming to the United States of America, thanks to the dummies in the Democrat Party. <laughs> Some people say that they're... They're sort of tinkering around with the mechanisms in these washing machines so they'll pull in more water, but that voids the warranty. <laughs> God, dog. And they're just tone deaf to any of this. Can you imagine trying to have a conversation with Joe Biden about this? You know, because it's not going to impact any of them. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. But the other thing that's, that's bothersome to me is that this is done without Congress. This is done via executive fiat, just deeming, hey, we're changing washing machines. And this is just more examples of overreach in the deep state, sprawling bureaucracy. And these bureaucrats, they eat this stuff up. They're, they're so dang power hungry. Well, we're going to take a break right here. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. Don't forget, we've got Representative Robert Johnson at 1105 and Aaron Rice at 1205. Stay with us. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. We're live today. We'll be here all week, too. I wasn't uh, planning to travel over to Atlanta for the 
Peach Bowl. Had other stuff going on, but uh, as of last night, there's been a change in my plans, and I'm headed that way Friday after the show. A friend of mine and I shall travel to Atlanta through the state of Alabama and spend the night Friday. The game, I think, is 12 o'clock, if I'm not mistaken, Eastern time. I think it's 11 o'clock Central time. We'll be on Eastern time over there, and then at the end of the game, we shall travel back. Looking forward to that. I heard it's a sellout, the Peach Bowl. So, oh yeah, fun. yeah. I do know they fun. sold all of their allotment of tickets. I don't know if they've sold out of their general admission, but you would imagine if the allotment sold out, there's enough interest to sell out the general admission. I would think so. I think it promises to be a, a good matchup. Looking forward to that. And it's the first time the two teams have met. That's on the gridiron. A bit of intrigue there for sure. Bit of history in the making. Let's see. Brent from Mendenhall says, who is more stupid, the ones pushing these idiotic things are on us or the ones who keep voting for these morons? <laughs> Talking about this, uh, all these uh, credits and uh, for electrical infrastructure for consumers, EV credits. And, of course, we now learn that the Biden administration is waging war, continues it's war on appliances, washing machines. That one kind of bothered me. I'm not into having to add water to the washing machine to wash my clothes. How silly is that? Well, that's what's being reported. And it's widespread reports that these newfangled washing machines can't use the water, and we want them to be electric, including the dryers, etc., I don't know. It is crazy, Brent. I hear you. And I think, once again, it's totally tone deaf. Already we've seen, what, the change in pizza ovens in New York and the banning of new gas hookups to any structures. I think in California and New York as well. It may just be in New York City at this point. There are other states that are taking this matter up as well, the blue states, of course. For climate change. Meanwhile, over there in China, it's like a coal plant a week or something like that. Crazy. And also, the Energy Department is scheduled to buy 3 million barrels uh, in an effort to replenish the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, 77 bucks a barrel. They had a chance to buy it at a lower cost than that, but failed to do so. 3 million uh, it does not totally replenish what was uh, was taken out in an effort to bring the price of gas down. This was the Biden administration. We now have 352 million barrels. We had 638 in January 21, 726 in December 2009. So you can see that we have less than half today in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve than we did uh, in December 2009 and a little more than half today than we did two years ago. So it just is uh, all, again, part of the Biden administration's war on energy, fossil fuels energy for sure. And, of course, it's, again, it's a situation that's 
hurting the very people that they claim they are advocates for. That's who gets hurt more than anybody. It's the same thing with his economic policies. The very people that they absolutely smear on a daily basis, those dirty, greedy, rich people, they're the ones who have benefited more from this president's economic policies than, as they like to say, hard-working American families. No, you've hurt them. There's no doubt. But the rich folks, folks who have a lot of their wealth tied up in investments, they're doing just peachy keen. Thanks to you, November uh, was an incredible month for the market. 2023 is headed toward being a finishing in the green and just a, a, a great run this year, recovering from uh, 21 and 22, I should say, uh, down year. So, yeah, way to go, Joe. That's what happened. They never see that coming. They don't, They cannot piece that together. I don't know. These policies may actually help the rich people and hurt those that are uh, not rich, shall we say, and, and uh, just average Americans. Just like he says, average hardworking folks that, whose income is around that median household income across the country. Median means that half the people make more than that, half the people make less. Yeah, those, you hurt them. Of course, they won't acknowledge that. They won't admit that. But I hear you there, Brent. Karen says in Oxford, the government can't switch us off whenever they want if we have gas, but they can with electric. It's not about them caring about our environment. It's about the ability to control us whenever they want to bring us to our knees and beg them to fix it for us. They actually could, Karen. I mean, you, you could, you absolutely can control the flow of gas. You, Man, they could control the flow of oil. I mean, if they if they wanted to overstep their bounds, which they do a lot, I'm not saying they are or will. I don't actually believe that that's. But it's easier to control a power grid than it, it is to it stop is. people from using a propane tank. It is. It would take some investment um, to do so, but uh, you know, if they really wanted to act in in that sort of stupid way, they could and they would, and they would have already done it. I don't actually believe that because I don't think that's what they want. I think what they want is power. And unfortunately, their power is derived from people who also think like they do and support their policies, and they confer power to them. That's It's like Brent and Mendenhall said, that, you know what, where do these people come from that believe that? And again, who are the 14% that say, yeah, I'm doing better in the Biden economy? And I would argue that it's you're going to find that's mostly people at the top end of the income scale. Yeah, they're doing fine. And uh, in the Biden's policies have facilitated that. Fantastic. Hmm. Well, uh, I think that going into next year, from an economic perspective, it does appear that inflation is, is tempering, it's moderating. Uh, based on the most recent reports. Uh, however, the price of oil is ticking up some, and that, of course, figures into the price of almost anything and everything, including the price of gas at the pump. 77 bucks today fell below 70 I think, in the month of November, as I recall. So it's up. I think that's mainly because of the various geopolitical 
strife and hot spots across the country and I'm in the world. And to some extent, China is starting to get back on its feet a little bit economically, a major consumer of oil. Oil is, of course, a global commodity. We are producing some 13 million barrels a day. That is up from where it was. Uh, And we consume just over 19. During the Trump administration, I think the most uh, we produced on a given day was about 12 million or so. So it's up, and they like to point to that, you know. But what they fail to pass on and communicate is that is that the, the trend continued when Trump left office. Had Joe Biden not immediately waged this war on fossil fuels, we would be producing more than what is being produced under Biden, even though it is more than it was three years ago on average. It's, it's all about where we were headed and the trend and where we would be today. And that would, of course, be beneficial for the economy, and we'd see. Uh, we would not have seen the crazy inflation that I think we, we saw over the last three years. And, of course, that also was driven by the American Rescue Plan, which was totally unneeded, and that injected some $1.9 trillion dollars into the money supply. Now, that's not giving a pass to the 2020 year when, on a bipartisan basis, some $6 trillion was injected into the economy, a record. And that produced $3.1 trillion deficits. And, of course, it contributed mightily to the inflation. However, I would say that inflation would have never gotten to the point that it did had the American Rescue Plan not passed. I think that was absolutely jet fuel for what was a kind of a smoldering pile of coals, and they put jet fuel on it, and then the flames ascended significantly, and that's what we're dealing with today. 2024, a big election year, and there's some new, because we're going to elect the president, and there's some news coming out from some of the candidates. We'll cover that on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. So it's hard to believe, but... The first Republican caucus in Iowa coming up January the 15th. According to my calendar, that's like two and a half weeks away. And it seems like Vivek already has one foot out the door. Correct. That's exactly where I was going. He has announced that he is canceling all of his television advertising in the state of Iowa. And this is before the caucuses. He says he's going to sort of redeploy those investments to other forms of campaign promotion. That's what he said. He said this isn't 
what most campaigns look like. We have intentionally structured it this way so that we have the ability to be nimble and hyper-targeted in our ad spending. That is according to Tricia McLaughlin, the campaign spokesperson for Vivek Ramaswamy. That's what Ms. McLaughlin shared with NBC News yesterday. So that's interesting. If I had to guess, I would say they're going to start targeting text messaging yeah. and probably digital. I don't see his campaign using mailers as much. I don't either. And, he, and now, look, he's all over uh, Twitter. He's all over Facebook, social media, Instagram, TikTok, the ab- all the above. He uh, email. I get a lot of email from him as well. And it's fairly constant, I'll, I'll admit. But I think if I were a bet man, I'd say he's gone after Iowa. I think uh, I also think Ron DeSantis is gone after Iowa. I think he is hanging his hat on Iowa. He does have the endorsement of the governor. They've, they're running some ads, as a matter of fact. Kim Reynolds, that was a little surprising. Of course, that drew the ire <laughs> of former President Donald Trump. The blame ultimately falls on the candidate, but it feels like with DeSantis, whoever is in charge of his campaign has broken all kind of records of doing so little with so much. That's true. I agree with you. Seems he was like, so far out in front when all this got started, and he has squandered so much goodwill. Had a, had a great resume. I think had a path. But, you know, it seems like he, he just kind of flopped in the debates, I think it's fair to say. And his, his personality just didn't resonate more than anything. Just his kind of delivery, his communications, his, um, I don't know, just his profile in doing it. And then we got on the heels of that in the next week, I think the 23rd, yep, January 23rd, New Hampshire. And that's where we get Governor Sununu, who has endorsed Nikki Haley. And I think Nikki Haley has the best chance, honestly, of of just challenging Mr. Trump. I think she stays in as a result of that endorsement, and she's she's polling better there. She's still behind. Trump still leads her in the polls. Trump, of course, got a huge victory, a court victory. When uh, they said that they're not going to take up, uh, the Supreme Court did, said they're not going to fast-track this claim that he is immune to prosecution on charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 election. That was a victory for him because it means he's not going to be held uh, hold up in court during the election, during the campaign, and and you could say nothing bad can happen to him because he's not going to be in court. Of course, he wants a good outcome, but you can't count on that. And he's attempting to get the entire indictment, of course, tossed out. I don't know that that's going to happen. But nonetheless, that's a big victory for him. It just means that it's full speed ahead in the critical campaign season, and it's upon us. We have to acknowledge that. It's coming right up. But that's, uh, that's a big deal, big victory. Uh, for the president. No doubt about it. So we've also got this budget situation coming up. The GOP, I would say, has a 
bit of an upper hand because you got these automatic budget cuts that kick in. That was the part of the agreement negotiated between former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and the President if they couldn't get the spending bills passed. I should make a correction. I said five of the 12 had been passed already. Three. I apologize for that. I did do some checking yesterday. Only three. So we get we got uh, a quarter <laughs> of uh, the total number of bills that require enactment to fund the discretionary component of government, and we are running out of time in that respect. Remember the dual expiration of the continuing resolution. That's the way Speaker of the House. Uh, Mike Johnson wanted it, and so that's it's coming at us in a hurry. It's going to be interesting to see what they can pull off. Will we see another continuing resolution? Will we get all 12 bills passed? Man, I don't know, but it's going to be busy for the month of January in Washington, as it is going to be here. By the way, i got to share it with you later on in the program, the latest financial report from PERS. Stick around. It's Fox News, Super Talk News, and Representative Robert Johnson. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays is now live. We are in the Element Well studio on this hump day. We welcome to the program now Representative Robert Johnson. He serves, of course, in the Mississippi House of Representatives as the minority leader, represents District 94, which incorporates Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson counties. Representative Johnson, good to see you, sir. Uh, Thank you for having me. You bet. So we got the 2024 session getting underway next Tuesday. It's hard to believe we're inside of a week of when you guys will be down there at the Capitol. Tell us what uh, some of your priorities are. Uh, well, you know, I, I uh, we we feel like uh, it's a new start. We got a good year coming. Uh, the state uh, has a surplus of, of money. Uh, our priorities hadn't changed. Uh, we want to help work on the things that people care about. People care about their water, sewer, their infrastructure. Uh, recently, well, in the last couple of years, Mississippi has gotten for their infrastructure report card. That includes transportation, broadband, water, sewer. It was, it was a D-plus. And that's not any fault of any particular agency in the state of Mississippi. It's a, it's a matter of resources and the fact that we suffer from the same thing that people all over the country do. And we have outdated infrastructure issues, water sewer all over the state. I know we hear a lot about Jackson, but a lot of small towns have outdated old 120-year-old pipes and, 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 and pumps and things that need to be replaced. Uh, the, uh, the, the Jobs Act, the Investment and Infrastructure Jobs Act that was passed in 20, 2021 provided $4.5 billion to the state of Mississippi. And we've, we've allocated about $2.5 billion of that, but we're still working on things, I think, are important. People want good roads. They want to be able to get back and forth to work. They want to be able to have uh, safe water they can drink. 
And so we want to prioritize making sure that we do what we're elected to do, and that's provide services. People want public safety. We want to do that. But we also have a responsibility to make sure that working people, I'm talking about working poor people, a guy that lives in Ruleville, Mississippi, who's a plumber, uh, who doesn't have access to health care. You want, you want that person to stay healthy. And so we finally got the governor to get on board about doing something. But we think that, that the fact that there's a lot of access to uh, uh, things out there that provide that kind of health coverage to people to keep a healthy workforce going. So we're going to continue to work on that issue, continue to make sure that no matter where you live as a child, that you should not be penalized because of where you live in low tax base, that you should be able to have access to a great public education. We want to make sure we do that. And so, I mean, I think those are the things that people care about. Those are the things that touch you and, and give you an opportunity to improve your life and create an environment in, in one of the hardest working states in, in this country for people who, who are who are salt of the earth. And we want to make sure we take care of them. So those are the things we care about. Okay. And the last thing I want to mention is, we want to make sure that we give the right for people to put their issues on a ballot. The ballot initiative needs to be restored to the people of the state of Mississippi. And I had some talks with some leadership in the House, and it's a bipartisan idea that we need to get that done. So that's where we are. Okay. Well, appreciate that. Good good rundown there. So with respect, uh, let's talk about health care first. <clears throat> with respect to health care, are you thinking in terms of Medicaid expansion as the route to achieve the goal of, of extending coverage uh, to the working population that are currently uninsured? You got something else in mind? Well, uh, you know, it's been called by many names. I, I, what I do know, and I like the public know, is there's a billion dollars. The same place that we get the $5 billion that we fund Medicaid with now, of which uh, 10, it's about $6 billion, but about 10% of that comes from the state. That, that same resource is available to us now. And even the governor has acquiesced and, and, and acknowledged that something needs to be done, and he's about, he, he has a plan to, to access those resources. I don't think it's a very good plan. I mean, we, his plan requires us to invest, our hospitals invest over $145 million to get $750 million back when there's a billion dollars out there with just with, with a whole lot less of an investment from the state. But, uh, yeah, thinking in terms of that, but that'll be that, – that idea, whatever we do, will be orchestrated by the leaders in the House and the Senate. And what, I'm, what I feel confident about and what I'm, I'm encouraged about is the, the uh, presumed new speaker, uh, Jason White, and the lieutenant governor have acknowledged that Something, uh, something very detailed needs to be done. Yeah. Well, I think it's certainly going to be something that is going to receive a lot of attention, a lot of deliberation, a lot of debate. And uh, I think it's going to take some, some smart folks to put their brain power to work to try to devise some solutions to uh, address the underlying problem. Let, let's. Um, yeah. Speaking of smart folks, you want to come over and help us with that? Well, uh, I, I would be honored, obviously, and willing to do anything I can to help, sir. And you, you and I have talked before, and you know that. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, if I, if I get a call, I'll do whatever I can to help. No doubt about it. I, I will tell you that I'm writing a. A, a very comprehensive, rather lengthy article about health care in the state right now, and, and, and I'm sharing some possible ideas, but I'm kind of ending the, the piece with saying now's the time to get the brain power, the brain trust of the state around the table, and they've got to represent a variety 
of disciplines. It can't just be people from the healthcare industry. It can't just be people that are in the capital. We need we need a lot of different people that uh, that, that come from uh, the various aspects be, uh, of our state because they're all affected by this, as you know. So um, yeah. I, I do anything I can. I appreciate that. So the um, let, let's talk about the ballot measure process. You're right. I, I, I will say, Representative Johnson, I hear that probably as much as I do anything uh, in the public and certainly on the text line here to show that the people want to see that restored. You know, we got a gap between what the House uh, feels like is appropriate in terms of the number of signatures to get a measure on the ballot and the Senate. Do you think we can close that gap and get something done there? Well, I hope that the public pressure, and I'm glad you acknowledge that, that people are calling and texting into your show talking about that issue, because I hear it publicly all the time. Yeah. And I hope that public pressure uh, finds itself to the to the state house. Uh, the, the house passed a pretty simple bill. It required more signatures, but it didn't have the restrictions on, in it that the Senate had proposed. So, we would hope that the Senate would get on board. I mean, I don't have a problem requiring more signatures. Some people say, oh, why are we doing that? I mean, if it's going to make it a more thorough and more trustworthy process, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, what I don't want to see is us limit what people can put on it. I think the, the voters in this state are, and the citizens of this state are smart enough to know what they want, and I think we ought to give them access. If they can get the signatures to get it, uh, I think we ought to provide that. But uh, in answer to your question, Okay. Yes, I think we're going to close that gap. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that sounds good. Well, hopefully we can get something done there. And I say that because, again, I think people would like to see that restored. They've been, as you know, without uh, a process uh, for the last two years, and they want to they want to bring it back. Um, we may run out of time here, but if you can hang around, I'd like to continue the discussion. But I wanted to get to the issue of of um, of education, and yeah. and what what I heard you say there sounded. <laughs> Awfully akin to to universal school choice. Is this something you're on board with, or tell me what you think we should do? Where do you stand legislatively on that? Uh, the short answer is uh, I, I don't have a problem with say community schools or, or way for kids. I just want the resource to stay, the taxpayer resources to stay with public education. Okay. Okay, so you would not support then an education savings account that would allow. Uh, a student that's currently enrolled in the public school to direct the funding that's, that uh, the state provides to their public school to direct that to, say, a private school where they can no, attend? I, I, would not be, I, would, okay. I would not be in support of that. Okay. Well, what about if they wanted to to attend a, a, another public school, just a different public school? I mean, you can do that today, I, I think, but you know this requires I, a, a process to get that done. I think, I think there's room for that, and I think that, that if we, again, Back to your original idea of putting heads together. We put heads together, come up with a plan that we that will not cause districts to to be at, uh, uh, unnecessarily adversely affected. I think that I, I I have looked at some ideas about that, and I think that's workable. Okay, all right. So, um, you, so I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. You don't support the sort of the universal school choice concept where um, uh, everyone basically has control over the funds that the state allocates to their particular pupil, and they can choose the education setting of their choice, but you're looking for maybe something a little more limited where perhaps a student could opt to attend a, a, a different public school, public-to-public public sort of transfer. To, to the extent uh, that, that, we, that we are pushed to find common ground, 
the latter thing that you described okay. is, is something that we could talk about. Okay, I got you. Well, I, I appreciate uh, your candor there. If you can hang around, uh, we can continue the, continue the discussion. I want to get your thoughts on uh, the governor's top priority, which is elimination of the income tax. See where you stand on there. And then the lieutenant governor has made it clear that his top priority is a state-funded, essentially free community college. Get your thoughts on that and anything else you got going on as well coming up. You good with that, Representative Johnson? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Okay, Thanks. sounds good. We'll, we'll talk to you on the other side of the break. Stay with us, folks. We're in the Element Well studio. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone. It's Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. We're talking to Representative Robert Johnson. He serves as the minority leader in the Mississippi House of Representatives. Represents District 94, which incorporates Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson counties. Just talking about the upcoming legislative session. So before we went to the break there, Representative Johnson, I just uh, mentioned that the governor, I think it's been pretty clear that uh, Total elimination of the state's income tax is, uh, A, if not his top priority. What do you think about that? Of course, we got some tax reform done a couple of sessions ago. It fell short, as you know, of full elimination, but it did eliminate the 4% bracket, and it will phase in uh, elimination of 1% of the 5% bracket so that we'll end up with a a single 4% bracket now in three years. What, What do you think about uh, tax reform. Well, uh, you know, when the when the House first proposed tax reform, I was on board with Speaker Gunn. I thought they, I thought the original House plan was a a great plan. It provided uh, it, it provided balance, and I think it it found the inefficiencies in our tax system. Even though I think there's a great deal of more study that needed that was yeah. needed, but it also, you know, looked it, it eliminated a, a great deal of the income tax, and it and it worked on ways. That, that that we could we, we would have a balanced, more balanced tax structure. As the as the process evolved, I think we ended up with a plan that was not as good, and I think it's one that I think out of a, an abundance of caution, the plan was put in place to be phased in, where we could see the effect. Now I, I've been in the legislature thirty years, and it may be too long, but long enough <laughs> to long enough to see that I've been I've known when we've been flush with cash. And I've seen when it was short with cash, but what I can, what I do know is that neither one of them lasts forever. And yeah. now we're flush, and there's there, there's going to be a budget crisis at some point. And I think that the the I think that the the financial committee leaders 
in the in the House and the Senate uh, displayed a great deal of wisdom by phasing in a, a process. Where you get a chance to see how it works, what it looks like, and what we could afford. I think jumping in a hurry to do a, a full elimination right now is, is something that we need to wait and see how the phase-in works. And, and let me say this. I think the elimination of the state income tax is probably an inevitability. But uh, given given the uh, the politics here in the state, I think it's going to happen. But I hmm. think that I think that that's something that we should take our time on. We, as I st- stated earlier, we have major infrastructure issues in this state, and if there's a surplus, if it, it should be spent on anything, something that helps industry, that helps people create jobs. I talk to supervisors, uh, city leaders, people who work every day, and what they care about is they want a, a better. You know, they want they want their first responders to be paid better, where they can have better employ, better people working for those services. They want better pol- uh, law enforcement. That's going to take a, you know better starting pay, those kind of things. I think those things are important, and they want good roads and bridges, and they want they want improved water resources and water sewer resources. And I think those are the things that we need to focus on. I'm telling you, when I when I and I, I'm not just talking about. I just talked to Democrats. I talked to people. I, I was all over this state this summer, and I, when I when I talk to people, those are the things they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about income tax. They don't want to talk about transgender or abortion. Mm-hmm. But they want to talk about, hey man, I got to go to work every day. This is the road I live on. It makes makes it hard for me. When I talk to people in industry, mm-hmm. they care about how they get their, their their products in and out. And I think that when you look at the the, the real the real purpose of government is to provide the basic services and if we do that and then we start thinking about some other things but that that's what i feel about that i'm not saying that the governor's idea is a bad idea i'm just saying that this is not the time okay all right so you know there's been a lot of discussion about uh either total elimination or reduction of the sales tax on groceries do you do you think that that's uh, a better idea than than uh, adjusting the income tax, maybe a combination of the two. What do you well, what do you think about let me, that? Let me, I'm probably going to get in trouble as a Democrat saying this <laughs> I, again, again. Even with the, I mean, I, I, you know, if there's a tax that needs to be reduced or, or, or eliminated, it is the one that you know what people have to eat. And yeah. so, if you can eliminate the growth, that that does make sense. Okay. And, and again, we go back to the original House plan. That was something that we had folded in. Now, we get a, a lot of pushback from cities who say, if you do that, that's a big part of our tax base. We won't be able to provide the, ser- provide the services. And so if we eliminate any tax that we eliminate, we've got to figure out how to fill in that gap. And so none of it is just as simple as, oh, get rid of it. And I, I got in trouble on the campaign trail this summer saying, hey, look, I don't want to talk about that right now. What I want to talk about is what, what you need. And so, yeah, I, I just think all of that, uh, uh, you know, should we should take the time, just like you talk about with health care, put the people at the table uh, from all different walks of life. Haley Barber, did, Governor Barber did this, I guess, in his first or second term. He had a he had a tax study committee, and we met all summer, almost all the year, and we brought in economists, we brought in all, and we there, there's a tax study out there that the governor commissioned. Yeah. And I think if we're going to do it, if we're going to make any more elim- elimination of any other tax or any tax reform, let's take the time to do what Governor Barber did. Put people at the table who know what they're doing from all walks of life, experts, economists, scientists, and figure out what works, what doesn't work, 
and let's put something together. But just coming in, I respect my colleagues, but I, you don't want the legislature just 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 nakedly coming up with an idea about how to eliminate the income tax, or the governor for that matter. Okay. So I, I would like to see a study committee and people put some time into it. Okay, fair enough. What about uh, the lieutenant governor's push to make a community college in the state uh, free, no cost? What do you think about that? Well, you know, uh, and he's, I'm going to get in trouble for this, too. Uh, <laughs> Delbert Holden may be one of our oldest legislators, but he thinks like a young man. He, okay. I mean, young people care about being able to afford college. They, they want to be able to, they want to be able to finish college, junior, you know, they can start out with junior college, but if they can finish with half the debt that they have now, that would go a long way into keeping people here in the state, people being able to have money to buy homes or, or, or put money back into the economy. So I think anything we can do to make uh, education or secondary education or, or up, uh, higher education more affordable to people. And I think that's a great idea. I think that's a, I think that money, that investment comes back to you. Okay. All right. You, you've talked a lot about uh, just discussions you, you've mentioned anecdotally you've had with constituents that are concerned about roads and infrastructure and so forth. Is there is there anything there, Representative Johnson, that you're thinking about the state um, should take action on with respect to this physical infrastructure? Yeah, I, look, I, I've said for years, I, I grew up in Natchez, and I represent Natchez. Grew up there, I've been there all my life. And the whole uh, the whole time growing up, the everything about Natchez, everything about, and I thought it was true about the state of Mississippi, and I later found out it's true about the country. Rivers, water, transportation makes all the difference in the world. I, one of our greatest resources, we're bordered by the greatest river in the state of Mississippi, in, in, the, in the country. Mm-hmm. And I, for, for the life of me, I can't understand why we don't focus more attention on the on the area along the river where we could take advantage of that that natural transportation resource to create more industry for this state. And everywhere you go in the country, if there's a river, you're going to find some industry. Mm-hmm. But in this state, for some reason, we 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 spend more time focusing on the interior than in areas where we could not only where the need is the greatest. But where the resources, land, water, rail, they're all there. And so I would, I would, you know, I would just like to see. And I mean, I'm, I'm not an economist and I'm not, you know, I'm not a uh, economic developer, but I've read enough about it to know that all those things add to your ability to create jobs and create a better uh, living environment and, and working environment for uh, the people in this state. I think that's where it starts. And so uh, one of the things I'd like to see from the leadership in this state, the governor's office, and the legislature, is a, is a refocus on creating industry and jobs in, in areas uh, where we can take advantage of those natural resources. Yeah. Okay. Well, so um, what I'm hearing there, which, which uh, I applaud you for, is uh, a strong interest in continuation of scaling the state's economy. And I think that's something that uh, the governor certainly always has in focus. About 30 seconds left, Representative Johnson. Your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's one thing I can applaud the governor. He, 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 is, he, he tries real hard, works real hard at creating an environment where we can attract industry and jobs. Yeah. I just think he's missing an opportunity. I okay. think the leadership in the House and Senate is, and I think I'd like to okay. see them and work together with them to, to create 
uh, opportunity in those areas. I'm with you. Let's keep talking about that. I appreciate you okay. coming on, Representative Robert Johnson. Thank you, sir. I hope you have the happiest of New Year's, and I'm sure I'll be seeing you down at the Capitol. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you. You take care. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Hello world, here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of love and it's what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Cassidy. Was that when he was solo, or was that part of the Partridge family? There? Pretty sure that was him solo, but I'll double check. Okay. Well, we appreciate Representative Robert Johnson for joining us on Middays Today. Um, I always enjoy interviewing uh, Representative Johnson. He's he's frank, and he, he said it a few times, did he not, Ron? I know this is going to get me in trouble. Um, but so anytime someone sort of prefaces a statement like that, that maybe is not consistent with um, their party, with their caucus, you have to respect a person who who uh, thinks independently and uh, is principled and, and most importantly, in my view, what I think Americans want to see, I know I do, out of their elected leaders is consistency consistency now i get it you could evolve on issues i i appreciate that oh we were both right okay it's david cassidy singing by himself for the partridge family theme song okay yeah because i i knew that was the show's theme song but Uh, it's that's his recording of it when he was solo okay cool that was actually one of those shows it was just kind of fun back in the day I think you had that and the Brady Bunch on um, Friday evenings. You know, the other one that was a Friday staple when I was growing up was the Green Hornet. That was cool. Oh, yeah. That was fun. You know, the problem was it aired on ABC when I was a kid. And before we got the ABC affiliate here, Channel 16, which I think was, I'm going to guess, 1965 or 6 or something like that. Uh, I would try to rig an antenna up so that I could catch, I want to say, a Greenville station that was an ABC affiliate. But until then, here in the central Mississippi, Jackson metro area, we only had CBS and NBC. Uh, That being Channel 12 and Channel 3, respectively. And then uh, Channel 16 showed up. Of course, that was uh, UHF, I believe, as opposed to VHF, which was a different signal range yeah and you had to have a different antenna for that had to have a a uhf antenna in order to receive a little circular deal sit on your television but and what was the green hornet's sidekick's name kato my little friend (laughs) you do know who played him right i don't that was bruce lee's first adult film role now that you say it i do remember that and you could kind of tell because Pretty talented with the moves there, right? <laughs> that was cool. 
Okay, well, but I just want to say that I appreciate Robert Johnson for coming on and uh, being open and honest and, and appreciate his candor. Um, you know, the school choice thing is something that is going to get, I would say, more debate perhaps than ever in the history of, of our state. I think that's uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, and I would stick at the top of the list of reasons, the fact that some of our other uh, neighboring states in particular that are under mostly Republican uh, governance are, uh, have been busy implementing school choice legislation. Arkansas, who could forget that one? That was as big a deal as I've ever seen made out of passing sweeping school choice education uh, savings accounts, uh, a measure that was under Governor Huckabee Sanders, Sarah, uh, within, it seems like, a couple of weeks after she took office. you got to know all that was poised and ready to go, got that done. Uh, our understanding is that Alabama intends to get something done in the uh, the very near future. Florida, of course, already has a, a rather sweeping school choice environment. Uh, Arizona, Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds. And so there, there's uh, more on the horizon, more discussion. Even some blue states have gotten close to getting stuff done on school choice, but haven't got it over the finish line yet. And it, this discussion comes up a lot, okay, what does that look like? And the, and the answer is, and I'm not trying to avoid the question, it's whatever the legislature can agree to that the governor will sign, literally. It's, it's not like, okay, school choice equals this. Conceptually, sure. The concept is that the families can determine how the money that is assigned, essentially allocated to their student which goes directly to the school, the district school that they attend, ultimately filtering down that way, that that rather than it continuing to go to the school, even if the student doesn't attend the school, let's say that they homeschool or they go to private school, that with an education savings account, that money would be available to them to then invest it as they see fit in the education setting of their choice, again, subject to the rules on how that money can see fit. And again, we need to to uh, just clarify the, the, the broad misconception that these are just checks that go out to people. Here, here's your money for your kid in school. No, it's not how it works. It, it would be an account uh, that one would have to apply for, by the way, and then the, the account would be funded. And then the funds could be used on various approved, authorized uses for education, materials, tutors, private school. It does not mean, I should clarify, because this came up last time we talked about this, Rhino, that I think somebody said, well, what if the private school just jacks the price up? That's irrelevant that the amount that gets allocated is uh, is that flat amount that comes from the state, the state's portion. By the way, not the district, not the county's portion, just the state portion, because it is a jointly, public schools are jointly funded uh, from money that comes from the state and then money that's, that's paid in the form of, of ad valorem taxes 
into the school district. So it's a joint funding. And that's all part of the complex Mississippi Adequate Education formula, MAEP formula. Uh, but nonetheless, just to be clear, it's not like, hey, I want to send my kid to private school. Just pick one here and we'll pay for it. And that's not how it works. Here's the amount of money that is available should you apply for an education savings account. If the private school tuition exceeds that, you got to pick that up. If it's less than that, you don't get to put that cash in your pocket. It's just that the amount that is needed to pay for that tuition is, is transferred to do so. And there are, and in doing some research, there are some private schools in the state whose funding models uh, prove to be less than per pupil than the state's public school or the average funding uh, when you combine the two. And then there are some that are more. But nonetheless, that doesn't change the amount available. That's in the case where a student in public school applies for an education savings account to use to attend a private school, to fund their tuition in a private school. And then, of course, you've got the situation where they may want to attend a a different public school. That's available today, but I believe it requires sign-off on both districts. It's it's a bit of an arduous process. Um, And then, of course, you may want to use it for homeschool, uh, charter school which we, we do allow, but again, you've got to apply and be accepted into the charter school, as you would in the private school. So it's it's also not this situation where, hey, we have universal school choice. I have not heard anybody advocate for a situation where, yeah, just absolutely no no guidelines around that, no restrictions, just empty the schools and you go from here to here. That's that's obviously not practical. You You couldn't. Uh, just to say, have everyone transfer from one school over to another. They don't have the capacity to do that, as an example, nor do the private schools. So th- there would be some, some reasonable uh, guardrails around that, that that would be incorporated into the legislation. That's the way it's been implemented in other states, just as a guide. So it's it's not like we're starting from scratch with a uh, an empty slate. Uh, again, we've got plenty of, of great examples learning from the other states, hey, what worked, what doesn't, what would you do different if you had to do it over again, what adjustments and amendments are you working on, all that would be in play. And so we have the benefit of analyzing programs in other states as a, as a template, if you will, at least as, as major guidance for ours. And I will tell you, folks, the same was true of the lottery. Um, you know, having been involved in that from the outset, because the state of Mississippi was the 45th state to enact and authorize a state lottery, good news is we had 44 other states to study to figure out, hey, what's the sort of the best practices across the board in operating a state lottery? And in drafting the legislation, that is exactly what happened. I can I can report that Governor Phil Bryant, who supported a lottery, did just that, and. Um, engage people on his team to do that and and our lottery bill is honestly the the combination of all the good stuff that worked in the other states and does not include the stuff that they said stay away from as an example i think we could do the same thing that's my only point with respect to school choice coming right back stay with us now that's country 
Thanks so awesome. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, yesterday we had the king, today we got the boss. <laughs> there has been a rather widespread exodus of people from the blue states to the red states. Largest gains, of course, in Florida and Texas, and that's uh, compared to, or since 2010, I should say. When you look at Census Bureau data, the period at 2011 to and now including 2023 net domestic migration to red states. Significant. Eight of the ten gains were in red states. And, of course, a big reason for that is taxes. However, the state of Maryland, they did not get the memo, as they say. They are proposing higher taxes on those dirty, greedy, rich people. They're running radio and TV ads. It's a union-funded group called Maryland Fair Funding Coalition. And they're running ads promoting the fair share plan. (laughs) They want to impose taxes at the entity level on small businesses. Oh, yeah, that's really good for drumming up the economy, isn't it? Raise the top individual tax rate from 5.75 to 7% on ordinary income and 8% on capital gains. And they want to slash the old estate tax exemption from $5 million to $1 million. Let's be honest. This is all about sticking it to what they would term as the rich white folks. I'm serious. Unbelievable. Corporate gains, surtax, all that garbage. Incredible. Ah, the station in Greenville on the ceasefire text line was WABG. Appreciate that. So I was just talking about how I had to rig up an antenna to catch my favorite show, The Green Hornet, before we had an ABC affiliate here in town, because that was the network that carried it. <laughs> my parents would say, what are you doing? In there with the aluminum foil, you know, rabbit ears. I'm trying to get, I want to say it was Channel 6 or something. Somebody probably remembers. I can't believe I can remember that, but it seems like it was Channel 6. Green Hornet. Gotta See, I'm from it. the generation where we still had TVs with UHF and VHF knobs on it, but those were generally saved for making machine gun noises when you spun it really quick. Yeah. It it didn't really have any function anymore by the time I'd come along. (laughs) Tim from Tupelo says, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer's nose was red because he is a conservative. Therefore, he knows how to lead his fellow reindeer in pulling Santa's sleigh. Unbelievable. Let's see here. Watched it the other night. That's it. The theme song for the Partridges show, says Andy and and Jackson. Watched it the other night. See, I told you, Rhino. Ding, 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 ding. It was Channel 6. (laughs) Remember now, this is 1966, 67 I'm talking about. That was the Partridge family intro song. Right. Yep, exactly. It was cool. 
Yeah, that's. I knew it was the intro. I was just having to double check whether or not that was the intro from the show, or if that was him recording the song after he'd gone into his solo career, and it was the latter. I got you. Yes, he is right. The budget deficit will come when and if the Dems get control. Talking about Representative Robert Johnson. Just keep in mind, Bob. Bob that's Bob and Startville. We cannot uh, produce a deficit. We have to balance the budget. If we if we spend less and we produce a surplus, that's fine. But um, I, I don't think so, honestly, to, to be honest with you. I know what you're saying, and if the Democrats were in control, maybe the situation would be different. Um, I don't actually believe that at the state level. I, I don't think even they would see fit to pass a bunch of legislation that would dramatically boost spending. And, and, uh, and because we have to balance the budget, that means they'd have to go to the people to raise taxes. I don't think that'd work. Honestly, in the state of Mississippi, I really don't. Um, didn't Senator Wicker vote for the jet fuel that I was describing? And that was the American Rescue Plan that passed shortly after Joe Biden took office. He did not, Paul and Hernando. What Senator Wicker voted for were three other uh, legislative measures that got uh, some Republican support in the Senate, the necessary number, in fact, to pass those measures to uh, overcome the filibuster, that was the infrastructure bill, the um, uh, the CHIPS Act, and the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill, which was passed just before Christmas of 2022. He joined a handful of other Republicans in the Senate to pull those measures over the finish line. He did not, I want to be clear, support the American Rescue Plan passed in 2021. That was what, Rhino, $1.9 trillion, as I recall. And that is the bill, I believe, that set us on this path uh, of ridiculous inflation. What, at, at its peak, 9.8%, it caused the Fed to start raising rates. It also, for about a year there, all them 400 PhDs that work in uh, the Treasury, and for the Fed said, transitory inflation. They were, of course, summarily wrong. We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News with Aaron Rice, the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute. We're going to talk about school choice. That's all day long. Your home for- Get ready. Get ready to go beyond the headlines. And join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's the afternoon portion of Middays. We are once again in the Element Well studio. We appreciate you joining us today on this hump day. We are here the last hump day of the year, 2023. That's the last one we got. We welcome to the program now Aaron Rice, the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute. Aaron, good to see you as always. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, good to see you too, Gerard. Thanks for having me. We just had uh, Representative Robert Johnson on the program. He, of course, is the minority leader in the Mississippi House of Representatives. He shared with us he's been in the House, what do you say, 30 years, I, I believe. I heard that. 
Um, and I I first met, I'll just full disclosure, Mr. Johnson back in 2013. Now, th- back in 2013, I was heads down running my business and uh, didn't have a lot of interest in, in politics. I, it kind of got interested in 2008 uh, when uh, Barack Obama talked about his plans for health care reform, and, and then I started investigating how that would affect my business, and that kind of inspired me, I guess, to take a more active interest, but more at the federal level than the state level. Well, I was asked to go in uh, by the Center for Public Policy mm-hmm. back then in 2013, wow. that's 10 years ago, to uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And there was a show that uh, used to air called At Issue mm-hmm. was the name of the program. And this was about Medicaid expansion. Yep. And this was, by the way, which wasn't even available until 2014 mm-hmm. under the law. And it was a split-screen debate with um, – last name was Eichelberger. He's known as Cottonmouth. Okay. Um, kind of on a on – a I remember him. Didn't he have a blog, I think? He did. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And and we had kind of an interesting debate. Well, Mr. Johnson, Representative Johnson, had just come off talking about some other matters, and I um and, and he watched that discussion. And afterwards, I just kind of shared with him, you know, other than Medicaid expansion as a way to address the uninsured, um, working poor, if you will. Here's some other ideas I have, and and after that, he and I, I guess, started dialogue, and that yeah. continued since. We're good deal. I, yeah. I enjoyed listening to him today. Yeah, he's he's really. But where we're going with that is that we we of course talked to him about education choice, mm-hmm. um, school choice, and that's something that, as you know, has um, has flared up certainly yeah. in our legislature from time to time. We did back in what 2014, 2015 time frame. We got charter school legislation passed, yeah. which allows charter schools to locate in D or F districts. There's right. a charter school authorizer board. The legislature, uh, the legislation created, uh, of course, uh, applicants submit their their proposal yep. to create a charter school, have to be approved. So we, we kind of have that. We have just setting the stage. We also have uh, a, a special needs yep. scholarship, and we have a dyslexia scholarship. Yep. And all that really does is works like universal school choice would in that uh, students, families, students that uh, do have special needs or dyslexia, if they are, um, based on their address, uh, attached to a school, they can't really adequately address their, their requirements from an education perspective. They can opt to go attend a different school. It could be, even be a private school yep. and yep. use the state-allocated money to, to fund that so they can get a, a more appropriate uh, education for uh, for their purpose. Now we're talking about extending and expanding what we have in Mississippi uh, to be even uh, greater in scope. Uh, and I, I guess I'll just, uh, before I shut up, I'll just say that the question comes up, what about this? What All legitimate questions. Can you do this? Can you do that? And my answer always is, it's whatever the legislature can pass. Absolutely. Is that right? I mean, there, there's no like, hey, this is school choice. Go pass this. Yeah. That, now, there are a lot of ideas. Yeah. Some good, some not. Yep. But the bottom line is, it's kind of a blank sheet of paper. <clears throat> it's a canvas waiting for the art, if you will. It is. And I think the most you can say on that is, 
uh, you know, what is being most widely talked about and what's being most widely considered. But you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, what's going to uh, come out of this is what the legislators uh, can agree to, if anything, that the governor's willing to sign. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, what's being discussed most widely, I heard you talk about Arkansas earlier today, yeah. and I, I do think that's the approach in Mississippi that's being discussed and talked about the most. And that's kind of your education savings account or education freedom account type approach. And, and I think that's, you know, what we'll be uh, probably looking at. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that you said people will throw up kind of, can we do this or what about that? And, you know, one of the arguments that has been uh, thrown out there a lot is is constitutional issues. You yeah. know, does it, uh, would that be constitutional under the Mississippi Constitution? And, and my answer to that is that it absolutely would be. There's some litigation going on that is pointed to uh, quite often by opponents of school choice that say, well, you know, a trial judge just recently ruled that uh, this pandemic program that appropriated money to private schools was unconstitutional, and now that's in front of the state Supreme Court. And so, you know, that might decide that, uh, you know, education savings accounts are unconstitutional. And, you know, really that's not what is going on in that case. That case involves, uh, first of all, federal money. So I think the, the Attorney General has some very good arguments right there that that wouldn't violate Section 208. And we can talk about what Section 208 says in a minute. But, uh, but you know, first of all, you're talking about federal money. And, and second of all, you're talking about money that was uh, directly given to those schools, you know, for uh, pandemic relief purposes. Yeah. And what you're talking about with an education savings account, which makes it fundamentally different, is that this money is is directed to the students or really to the parents of the students. It's a, it's a benefit to those students that they can choose to spend. And you mentioned it earlier on the program. They might choose to stay in their public school, apply for those funds to use them for tutoring services or extracurricular uh, expenses. They might choose to use apply for those funds and use them to pay tuition at a private school. They might choose to apply for those funds to use them for expenses related to homeschooling. But either way, the money is is flowing to the student and to the parents of those students, which really, uh, to me, makes any constitutional argument. And we'll talk about what Section 208 says, but it really just uh, takes that off the table. And you're not talking about something that might could violate Section 208 of the Mississippi Constitution, which says that state education funds shall not be appropriated to the support of any school that at the time is not a free school. That's right. what Section 208 says. Yep. So when you're talking about education savings accounts, you are not talking about appropriating money directly from the state to any individual school. And in fact, and we made this argument in the pandemic case, we filed an amicus brief in that case, uh, that the Supreme Court has already decided that. There was a case in 1941 in which the legislature set up a fund that uh, – purchased textbooks that could be given to students, whether they attended a private school or a public school. And some people challenged that on the same ground, Section 208, and said, oh, this is a a benefit to these private schools. It's unconstitutional. And the state Supreme Court said, no, it's not. This this is going to the students. And sure, those students going to these private schools, that might indirectly benefit those private schools because now they've got students that they don't have to pay textbooks for. But any, any benefit to those private schools is incidental. The benefit is directly to the student. And and that's what's important. And so I think the same thing is true of education savings accounts. I think that will be made clear when the Mississippi Supreme Court rules on this pandemic relief issue. That's one of the reasons we filed an amicus brief in the case was to 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 point that out to the court that that however you rule here, you need to be clear that you've already ruled that that uh, that funds can go to the parents. And that certainly doesn't violate the state constitution, regardless of whatever you decide about these federal pandemic funds. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to, to kind of put it 
even in, in even simpler terms, essentially it's the it's the money that the state is paying for the education of a student to a public school, and rather than it just going to that school with, without really the parent having any control over that, and whether or not the student attends the school. Absolutely, that's so, exactly what it is. You're 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 putting the control into you're empowering the parents. Yeah. and and you know the 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 system we have. Uh, without that is to say, well, you live in this zip code, and so you have one choice. Yeah. You know, you, you, This is where you have to go, unless you are fortunate enough to just have enough money in your own pocket to, to pay to go you know, afford private school. But what this is doing is saying, look, you know, the, the, the money that we otherwise, again, would just go to this school regardless of where that's where you want to go or not, you can choose to apply for those funds, receive those funds, and then empower you to make that decision of where do I want to send my kid, where is the best education education choice for my kid. And again, too, this is not an attack on public schools. I mean, a lot of parents, regardless of what happens with a program like this, are going to continue to send their kids to public schools, and sure. we want those schools to succeed. And uh, and so, again, what it really is doing is just putting the parent in the driver's seat and letting them have a, a choice in where their kid is going to go. And for some of these parents, they really are in a situation where they're in a school district that is not performing, and they don't have the money to afford to send their kid to a private school. And again, this just empowers them to say, look, you know, if this option is not working for you, you can use these funds and decide if there's another option that would. Yeah. We got a break on us right now. We're talking to Aaron Rice, the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, discussing uh, the possibility of expanding school choice here in Mississippi. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, we're talking to Aaron Rice, the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, focused today on school choice. And the main reason we asked Aaron to come in is because there have been uh, some, including in our state, our lieutenant governor has said that he felt that that uh, use of public dollars that go to fund the public schools, public education in Mississippi, if those if those dollars were um, used to fund education savings accounts and thus then used to to pay for uh, a student's tuition in a private school, that would violate uh, the Constitution. Mm-hmm. 
and law in general, but but that's not what's happening here, and you yeah, explained that. Exactly, so. and, and yeah, we explained it already, and again, the distinction there is that you're not talking about a program that says, where the state of Mississippi says, hey, we really like this private school, so we are going to appropriate a million dollars a year to support that private school. That's not what's happening, and if that was happening, there would be an argument that that violated the state constitution, but yeah. what instead is happening is the state would be saying, we want to support education for our students, and one way we're going to do that is to allow the parents to choose where to spend that fu- those funds. And so uh, the fact that some of those parents might happen to spend it at a private school doesn't mean that's an appropriation by the state to a public school. Just to you give an analogy, to say that that is a state appropriation to a private school would be like saying, you know, that uh, a, a tax refund is an appropriation of federal dollars to Target. You know, I might happen to spend some of my refund uh, at Target. I might spend some of it at Walmart. That's you right. Know? But the, the government is not appropriating any money to Target or Walmart or anyone else. They're they're giving me money. It's a benefit to me. Actually, it's a, a refund of my own money. But the money is coming to me, and, and, and it's not an appropriation to any grocery store. And so it's the same issue with school choice. Yeah. So um, – a couple of things that I that I want to get to here on the ceasefire text line that uh, I'm going to address, and I'm going to let Aaron talk about it as well. Uh, in a town like Oxford, the wealthy citizens that attend Regents, which doesn't offer nearly as much as either public school here, will simply take their money out of the public school and pay a premium on top of that tax money to keep the school with the demographics they desire by pricing out the average person. And then there was um, another statement here. Where someone, uh, let's see if I can find it here. I apologize for that. Uh, honestly, it sounds like a shell game to get around the law was something that came up. And, uh, well, shoot, I can't find it now. But <clears throat> there was someone that said, you know, help me understand how this won't hurt my public school from a funding perspective. So uh, I'm going to say something, Aaron, that, that, I, that I've kind of thought through and uh, about this and, and let you address it as well, and that is if – consider this for a minute. Just think about the math here. If every student currently enrolled in private schools, which is, by the way, voluntary, mm-hmm. they've chosen and they're paying tuition to attend a private school, if every student decided – I'm I'm uh, going to go enroll in the public school to which I'm assigned, and I'm going to exit the private school. And thus, the private schools shut down because they don't have any students. They don't mm-hmm. have any revenue. It would break the state of Mississippi because the public schools would then have to invest an enormous amount of money to accommodate the influx of all the private school students. Well, in reality, what's happening is those who send their kids to private school – still pay the taxes to fund their public schools. Absolutely. And if they exited the private they're double paying, if you think about yeah. it. They're paying taxes, both local and state, for to, to pay for the education of their children in the public school. And on top of that, they're paying tuition voluntarily to attend a private school. If they all bolted and they said, okay, public school, we're here, they couldn't accommodate them. 
the state would have to come up with billions. I really do believe that. Absolutely. And you can say that in reverse by saying under school choice, for example, if a student who otherwise would have been in a public school and now all of a sudden can afford to use this uh, education savings account and chooses to send their kid to a private school, the, the public school actually comes out ahead on that. No doubt. Because the reason that is the case is that the state education funds would follow the student, but those local ad valorem taxes would not. And so, in other words, the, the, local, the public school is losing a student that they have to educate while retaining the local taxes that that student, you know, uh, his parents are paying. And right. so, so really they come out ahead on it. And to the question of, you know, how help me understand how this uh, wouldn't hurt my public school. I mean, first of all, we just answered part of that, which is when if students did leave, it would actually financially help the public schools on a per-pupil basis. But, you know, more broadly, I think that, you know, the issue here is that, um, I, I mentioned earlier, most students are going to continue to go to public schools. And, and I think that uh, for public schools that are performing well, this is going to be a total non-issue. I mean, you're not going to have Correct. this pent-up demand for a private school to move in to compete with that public school for students. If if your public school is, is doing well and everybody loves that school and everybody wants to send their kids to that school, they got nothing to worry about. And so the issue is really in a, in a district where it's failing and the parents do want other options. That's where there's going to be demand for an alternative, and that's where you might see some some private schools pop up. And, you know, if that – you know, the question of – would that be good or bad for the public school? I mean, of course, we want things to be uh, good for every school in our state. But ultimately, the, the question needs to be focused on the students. You know, what is best for the students? And if you're sending your child to a school that is not performing, a public school that's not performing, and that's the only option you have, the best thing that can happen for those students is for there to be another option that's right. in that district. That's right. And and I, I want to point out as well that I think the, the fear that there would just be this uh, just un- unbelievable uh, upending of the current environment that we just see lots of students moving about. That's not what's happened, by the way, in Arkansas. If you've yeah. done any any uh, post sort of legislation research on that, it um, y- you know there are a, a, a reasonable number of students and families that have taken advantage of that. We should also point out this comes up as well that. There, there are different grades of this school choice deal, like we were talking, yep. different extents of it. So I think in Arizona, for example, that money uh, that is allocated per student goes to that student whether they're currently in pu- private school or they're transferring from a public to a private school. Mm-hmm. In Arkansas, that's not the way it works. In yep. Arkansas, the ESAs are only allowed for for students that are seeking to transfer from a public school to a private yeah. school, currently in a public school. Those already in private school, they don't get any help. They don't get the benefit. Yeah. But in Arizona, they did do it that way. It is, in fact, having an effect yeah. on their finances and opponents of choice. Or, of course, they're parading around pointing that out. That's had a negative impact. And another aspect of this, and again, like you mentioned, you know, this just depends on what comes out of the legislature and is signed. But one of the things that you typically see and and was done in Arkansas and I think is being considered here, just for people to understand, this education savings account could be used whether you're sending your child to to public school or private school. So, in other words, if you decide my public school is good, 
it works for my student. I want to keep my student in this public school. You can still apply for those funds and use them for all kind of things. So you can use them for tutoring services if your student needs right. that or you want to provide that. You can use it for certain extracurricular expenses that you have you know, related to your child's education. And so just for people to understand, everyone can benefit from this education savings account. Every student can, whether they go to public school, private school, home school, wherever they go, every student can apply for and receive this benefit and, and use it, again, regardless of whether they go to public school or private school. And we should also point out that um, in Arkansas, when they set this up, it only allocates 90% mm-hmm. of the state's cost to the ESA. Yeah. And, and again, we need to clarify, the local portion of school funding is not part of this. This Absolutely. is just the state's portion. Absolutely. The and local it, funding doesn't apply. Exactly. Again, which goes to the point that Gerard and I were discussing earlier, which is that you know, if any student does leave a public school, they're actually financially better off. I mean, they're losing a student but still retaining the local out of the local taxes. The local money, right. Yeah. 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 I still say if we emptied out all the private schools and they head for the doors of the public schools, they couldn't accommodate yeah. Yeah, it, it would We'd be, have to start building schools. It'd be a financial disaster. Really. And hiring a bunch of teachers. Yeah. Building stadiums and all the like to Think about that. Replacing. You'd be inserting the entire private school ecosystem yep. in the public school. Exactly. And and we've discussed this already, And uh, but I think at the end of the day, the, it, it really needs to all come down to the students. You know, we can talk about what does this mean for this school or for these administrators or these teachers or this or that, and all of that is important. But at the end of the day, the most important question needs to be what does this mean for students? Is this good Agreed. or bad for students? And, and I think most people would agree that, you know, it, it would be better for students students, if they're in a district that is not performing, it would be better for them to have another option and to be able to control you know, their education funds, where they go and where they send their students. And, and that's all we're really talking about. That's what we're talking about. But before you go, I just want to clarify, in your professional opinion, this does not, ESAs do not violate the Constitution. Absolutely. I think the Mississippi Supreme Court has given us every reason to believe that an education savings account is perfectly constitutional under the state constitution. Well, we got to take that off the table as an objection. There Absolutely. may be other objections. This ain't one of them. I don't think this is a legitimate one, for Appreciate sure. Appreciate it, Aaron. Yep. Thanks for coming Thanks, in. Thanks, Coming right back, folks. Stay with us. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back. We had a uh, an enlightening discussion, as is always the case, with Aaron Rice, the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, concerning school choice. So what we're going to continue to do here on the program, because I do think this is going to get a lot of attention in the legislature this year, and, I, and I'm, I'm uh, glad for that, is, again, I, man, I appreciate and understand folks' concerns. I really do. Um, I appreciate that they that they have concerns. Let's put it that way, because I know you're, <laughs> you're shaking your head a bit. Yeah, but. I don't understand this mindset that 
kids and parents of kids are going to leave a good school to go to an underperforming private school. I totally agree. That's like pushing away a steak and going, let me get some little Caesars over here. They're, then they're, they're a lo- You've heard so many objections. What about this? What about this? Right. So what I think we should focus on, um, rather than continue to hammer on the benefits, which are important, no doubt about it, of school choice. And, and Aaron, I think, described that perfectly. Is that really, we're, our concern here is about the best setting to produce the best educational outcome for the student, for the children, no doubt. But to those who have concerns, I want to make sure that we adequately, truthfully, resolve their objections, handle their objections. And and by the way, where those are, are important are in the legislature. And because members of the legislature, who I think want to support this, even Republicans, because generally speaking, this is a, a widely held conservative viewpoint, it is not popular in the Democrat circles. That's just, nationally, that's just a fact, is that they can understand that many of these objections uh, are, are just invalid. They really don't have any merit. And so that they could stand before their constituents that are voicing concerns and then respond to them in a truthful, accurate manner. No, this isn't what this is. Uh, and I would not support whatever that is. And again, I want to point out, it's a it's clean slate. It's a... It's a blank canvas waiting for lawmakers to uh, to put their art on it, essentially, and, and craft good legislation. And Arkansas is a good model for that. Um, but I I think that's where we got to go with this. I really do. I, the 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 case for in favor of I think is well founded. Uh, one of the concerns we have about expanding the number of charter schools in the state is that they can only locate in a D and F district. Well, I saw the recent report. We only have six now. Now, do you believe of the, what What do we have, 120-something um, school districts in the state? Only six? Or D or F? Only six. 144. Okay. So only six. Uh, I don't know about that. So, and why that's important is because a charter school can only locate in a D or F district. I think that's one of the first things we should change legislatively is to allow charter schools to locate in any district. Now, charter schools uh, again rely on on um, state funding. They're essentially pu- public schools. They're not private schools. They're public schools because they operate with state uh, funds. Same deal. It's an account. And so a student applies to enroll in a charter school and exit the public school. And the money follows them to the charter school. So the public school would say, perhaps the public school would say, well, gee, we're losing our money. Well, what if, just a crazy scenario, every student in a public school, Maybe some sugar daddy came along and said, hey, tell you what, I'm going to build a private school here, and every one of you can go, and I'm going to pay for it. Then what happens? I guess they're fine with that. Maybe it's half of them. I don't know. But you see, the point is that the public school system is designed 
and is responsible for providing, by law, public education to everybody. And if they're enrolled in private school, and I know I said it's voluntary, and someone said here, um, yeah, um, it should be voluntary. I agree. And and I don't think you'll find any any folks, uh, any families that are paying for a private school education. I've never heard any of them argue, honestly. Hey, the state really ought to be sending me some money for this. I'm helping the state out. I've never seen a person in my lifetime do that. Have you? Uh, some libertarians, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I stand corrected. I wonder if they even have kids in school or if they're just libertarians that are expressing their viewpoints. I don't know. Could be either. But okay. Fair enough. Um, but, of course, those people, for the most part, I think would prefer that the uh, government be out of the education business, right? I think yeah. that's one of the things they stand on. So, okay, that makes sense. But, I mean, in general, if I went to the halls here of Jackson Prep or St. Andrews thinking about the private skills Jackson Academy, I doubt I'd find too many parents to say, oh, yeah, now that you mention it, I think the state ought to be sending me some money to reimburse my tuition. I just haven't seen them, you know, in the streets clamoring for that, as an example. Um, and so I think the way to handle this in a way that that assuages those concerns and fears and, and gets something going here is to do like Arkansas did. It's only available to students in public schools that, that wish to transfer. They apply for, for an account. And if it doesn't cover the full cost, then they have to cover it out of their pocket. And by the way, the private school is not compelled. I would not support the government compelling the private school. You must accept everybody that applies. I don't care if they, what the reason is. If they apply, whatever their application, their admission standards are, those should apply, even to kids that seek to transfer from a public school using an education savings account. That's I'm not for that. I don't want the government dictating to the private schools their admission standards. Now, there's some who say, well, I have concerns that in fact, if the public money is going, being transferred, being used to fund tuition, it, let's say in a private school, in a micro school, home school, charter school, whatever the setting may be, that um, they are not adhering to the standards that the public schools have to do, have to have to comply with. That's that's a okay. I get that, but does that really matter? If the student and the, their parents or their caretakers are okay with that, I mean, it's it's not like they're they're um, I think lacking information there. They they should should go through the diligence of making that choice. But the most important thing is they are best suited, not the government, to determine whether or not that setting is optimal and helps that student achieve their fullest potential. That's what it's all about producing that education value and outcome that enables them to thrive in life after they're a student. That's the goal of education, period. It doesn't matter if it's public, private, charter, homeschool, micro school. doesn't matter. That ought to be the goal. Now, somebody may argue with me on that and say, no, that's not the goal. I, I struggle to find another reason, honestly. It's especially... When you consider uh, how much we've talked about the the um, higher ed environment, with all these these uh, education 
effort, investment, time, money spent on pursuing these worthless degrees and and taking all these worthless courses that don't really prepare them for a productive life post education. So hopefully we can we can get something done that everybody can live with and, and make sense. Again, Arkansas with only allocating ninety percent of the of the statewide per pupil average, I think uh, makes sense. And it's phased in, by the way. Available to all K twelve students by twenty twenty five. It gets phased in between the, the time it was enacted until 2025, as far as what expenses qualify and who's eligible for it and so forth. And, you know, maybe it's um, maybe it's a situation where it's, it's means-tested as well. Maybe that's a, a deal, especially if it's, it's paying for um, public school students to transfer for private schools. That's something Arizona's thinking about. They have a universal school choice, and even... Those families with students who currently enrolled in private schools that were in private school when they enacted the legislation, they also get an account if they apply for it that can be used toward the tuition in the private school. And that that is causing some financial headaches for them. But, again, I think what that shows you is kind of proves the point I made is that the public school system really isn't set up to accommodate all those that are in the private schools. It It would put a financial hardship if they... Abruptly, or even in a over a phased-in short time of, of uh, short period of time, they started transferring out to the public schools. They'd be overwhelmed. We got the final segment on middays coming back after this break. Stay with us. Ah, it's so awesome. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice our love. Blue Graham, the lead vocalist of Foreigner. I think that's Mick Jones on the keyboards there, also the guitarist, founding member of Foreigner. On the ceasefire text line, Oxford would have millions not come into its budget and have basically the same amount of students. That's not possible because the money would only flow out of the public school into an education savings account if the student exited the public school and applied for the account for a different setting for their education. So that's not true. It's not like, hey, we're taking all your state money. I want to make clear, that's not what education savings accounts are. It's not like that that the state just places all that money, takes it away, rips it away from the public school districts that it currently allocates, rips it away, sticks it in an account, and everybody can just do whatever they want to with it. That's not how it works. Not at all. I've never seen such an implementation of the states that have enacted school choice programs. haven't seen that. So I want to make sure that's not not the case. Get the government out of education, says Matt Rose, and lower my taxes accordingly. Don't think that's going to happen, Matt. 
Where I live, our public school is a C ranking, and the charter school has an F ranking when MDE releases scores for this year. It wouldn't be in that district because they cannot locate, except in D and F districts. But I, but I hear you. And one thing I would say to keep in mind about some of the charter schools that that um, you'll see some rather low ratings on is that they that's often because they do end up serving the more problematic students, the students that are struggling in the public school setting, and it um, they transfer to a charter school to improve that. And and that does kind of dilute. And the, the goal, of course, is to get them a, a a better environment to help them improve that situation. 140 school districts, says uh, Casey. Many students do not do well in large public school settings. We have for years talked about creating a small school setting in our alternative education center. However, we are limited by funding. I believe Casey uh, serves on the Ocean Springs school board still does that's i think i thought the top rated district if i'm not mistaken in the state certainly one of them yeah i i I hear you um again i think that's just in line with the idea that one size fits all that's the that's just that's the bottom line premise behind school choice one size does not fit all that definitely and you you just can't uh, apply the exact same environment, standards, structure, all the above, to every single student and get the same outcome, essentially. D- different, just thrive in different circumstances. Not a whole uh, un- a lot uh, unlike um, your professional career. Same deal. I mean, it's just some situations you just do better at. Some you don't. That's the way God made us. That makes sense. I guess I worry the next step that your guests and like-minded individuals would take would be to change that law in upcoming sessions to expand or cover future expenses. Well, that's based on who you vote for. I don't see that happening. I, I just, when you start drifting away from the use of public dollars intended to fund education for other purposes, that becomes a problem. That would get a constitutional challenge and probably would prevail, honestly. And, again, I, I've heard it so many times. You may have, too, Rhino, this this misconception that education savings accounts are, are simply checks that just get sent to those who have applied and been approved. And then the state would essentially rely on those recipients to invest that money in the education of the uh, the pupil in their household. That is not what education savings accounts are. Let me be clear on that. It's not helicopter money. It's an account. That's why it's called an account. That can only be used for certain approved purposes. Those would be approved by the legislature. And and it does not flow through the individual unless unless they have some legitimate valid expenses that are reimbursable but they have to pay for them out of their pocket and then apply for reimbursement. And those have to be reviewed and vetted and approved. It's not unlike in a, a private company setting. If you are doing official work for the company, whatever their expense policy is could possibly apply, such as mileage, for example, or per diems, things like that, other travel accommodations, and you submit 
an expense report after you've incurred those expenses, and then those are either approved or rejected. You typically have to provide some receipts as well, right? Over a certain amount. I think we did in our company, uh, 25 bucks or something like that. All children benefit from a system that requires schools to compete to be the best, says Karen in Oxford. I agree. We'll get to more of that uh, tomorrow. My kids are out of school right now, or, or out of school, I should say. Can I quit paying taxes, says Keith in Vaden. <laughs> Appreciate that. Casey informs, yep, still on the school board. Yep, we're the number one district in the state. We're out of here today, folks. Back with you again tomorrow. Until then, uh, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.